some things in life are more complicated than they should be. Do you agree with that? Like folding fitted sheets. Talking to an actual human being when you call customer service. And thanks to Starbucks, ordering coffee is now an Olympic event. I'll take a venti salted caramel mocha frappuccino with five pumps of frapp roast, four pumps of caramel, three pumps of mocha, three pumps of toffee nut syrup, double blended with extra whipped cream, please. Determining a legal catch in the NFL now requires three officials, five lawyers, and a call to the front office. And have you ever tried to use the TV at somebody else's house? Since when did that become a thing? It makes you long for the old days of 13 channels on a dial. The teenagers could tell you the joys of actually getting the class schedule you want. I've had several teens tell me that that is a headache. If you're the parent of young children, then you know some things that are overly complicated. Car seat installation. Assembling toys with poor instructions. And keeping both shoes on their feet at the same time. More complicated than it should be. If you're the parents of older kids, then you know the living hell that is filling out the FAFSA every year. Milan, can I get an amen on that one? But at the top of my list has to be taxes. True story, no joke. We got a letter from the IRS this last week. Of course, anytime you get a letter from the IRS, you know, beads of sweat start coming down, you know, what's this going to be? He opened it up, and, and the letter basically said, we received your tax payment for tax year 2016, so last year's taxes, but we do not have your 1040. What? But it was in the same envelope with the check. How do you lose my taxes? I guess at least they have my money. I've gotten credit for that. That was like nine months ago. And they're just telling me about this now. Relationships are complicated. We even have that as a status on social media. It's complicated. Decisions are complicated. School is complicated. Work is complicated. In fact, all of life is complicated. It seems sometimes that life is one giant Rube Goldberg machine. But should finding Jesus be complicated? Should you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to hear about the good news of Jesus and the grace of God? You see, sometimes I think we make it more complicated than it really is. In my years of ministry, I have seen churches and I've seen Christians make people jump through hoops like unwritten dress codes. Well, you don't really belong here unless you look a certain way. And, and thankfully that's changed uh, in large part. I know some of us really long for the days when people wore their Sunday best church, and if you want to wear your finest as an expression of worship to God, then by all means do so. But I don't want somebody coming in here who really needs Jesus 
feeling like a pimple on a 17-year-old girl on the way to prom. Sometimes it's just the language we use, the lingo. If you don't speak Christianese, church can be a pretty confusing place. I mean, we've got all these phrases and cliches. We, we pray for traveling mercies. We talk about being spirit-filled, bearing fruit, having a cross to bear. We have a spirit of heaviness. We're blessed beyond measure. We have a quiet time. We pray for a hedge of protection. I could go on. Or how about when we read a translation of the Bible that's over 400 years old? And so people have to, to translate one form of English into another form of English and then into something they can understand about who Jesus is. I remember I, I caused a minor controversy in a, in a church years ago when I made a change in the bulletin to the order of worship. And I didn't change the order of worship, I just changed the words we used. The bulletin said, invocation and benediction. And I had somebody new come into the church. What's an invocation? Well, opening prayer. Why not just say that? So we changed it. Opening prayer, closing prayer. We've made music a barrier. Some of us remember the worship wars. You know, hymns versus contemporary choruses. And, and thankfully, we have reached a place of... of a, a not a peace treaty, at least a truce or a ceasefire. Um, but even now, I, 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 I kind of wonder, I said, what if somebody's just now coming to, the, to, to Christ and, and they don't like contemporary worship music? You know? What, what do we do? Because we don't worship, with, we don't worship with, with country music or, or hip-hop or whatever other style somebody might like. Um, we've made hoops out of political affiliations. But if you're a real Christian, you'll support this party or you'll vote for this candidate. Um, Jesus is Lord of the voting booth on Tuesday, just as He is Lord on Sunday. And I will not shy away from talking about a, a, a moral or a spiritual issue just because it also happens to be a hot-button political issue but I don't think Jesus wore a lapel pin that was a donkey or an elephant. As we continue this series, Loving Like Jesus, we want to talk about loving with an accessible love. A love that makes Jesus as accessible as possible. And by that, I don't mean what the world means when they say, well, if you love somebody, you, you just have to accept them. And by that, they mean that you have to embrace and applaud all of the sin in their life. And that Jesus tells us in Matthew seven fourteen that the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few that find it. And we can't come along later and make that narrow way wide. But what we can do is remove as many of our own man-made hoops and barriers as possible so that people can come to Jesus on His terms and nothing more. And as we planned this sermon as a group of pastors, we landed on a Scripture that was, was kind of surprising to me, and we looked at it with fresh eyes. This passage is found at the end of Luke 2. And it is the only story we have from Jesus' childhood. He's 12 years old. Now, just a month ago, we were celebrating the birth of Christ, so now we get to peek in 
when Jesus is 12 years old in Luke chapter 2. And, and verse 40 is, is one verse, and this one verse covers all of the time from the day Jesus was born until this time when he was 12 years old. And here's what it says. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So Jesus was growing spiritually and intellectually, and he's growing physically. And he's also finding God's favor. And then we come to our story in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And any of you who's ever lost your kid know you're in good company here. All right? When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were so astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's begin by looking at the end. Verse 52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he's growing inside. He's growing outside. But he's also growing there in favor with God and man. And the word favor here is the Greek word charis. Now, I don't throw a lot of Greek at you. I try not to anyway. But this, this, this word's a pretty big deal because this is the word that is often translated in your Bibles as the word grace. However, it is not used in its theological sense here. Charis was a very common word in the first century. People used it every day. And, and like many of our words, it had multiple layers of meaning. Many times it was used in an aesthetic sense. Like we might use the word grace to describe a ballerina and how she moves. They would use the word charis to describe something that was beautiful, artful, tactful. So, a fine wine or a clever turn of phrase were examples of charis. There were other meanings too. It also meant to, to bestow a favor or a blessing or to win or earn somebody's favor or blessing. So the way a person would win the favor or charis of others was by being a person of charis. And that's how the word is used here. The word at its root means to reach out or extend oneself toward someone. So what we see in this passage is that Jesus is reaching out toward God, and God is reaching toward Jesus, and Jesus is reaching out toward others. 
and others are reaching toward Jesus. And if we apply that to our lives, the way we win favor with first God and then others is by reaching toward God and then allowing God to reach toward us. And then reaching toward other people with the love of Jesus and allowing them to reach toward Jesus through us. We grow in the favor of God and people when we make ourselves more accessible to God and make Him more accessible to others through our love for them. So that's, that's where the passage ends. Now, let's back up to the beginning because in this text there are three keys to making the love of Jesus more accessible to others. And the first step is to come. We must come. And we first come to seek God's favor. Back in verse 40, we see that, that, that before this story even happens, Jesus is already growing in the favor of God throughout His childhood. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Maybe your translation there says the grace of God was upon him. The same word, charis. But I think that's a poor translation here. Because this isn't grace in the theological sense. Jesus lived a sinless life. He didn't need God's grace. This is the favor of God. The blessing of God. And then we see Jesus come to the temple. Here's the scene. Jesus comes for the feast of the Passover. This is the holiest of holy days for the Jews. When they celebrate the time that God delivered their people from captivity and slavery in Egypt. And it was commanded in the law of Moses. And so they come to worship. They come to offer sacrifice. They come to pray and to learn. And every year they go to the temple to worship. This is what God wanted. It pleased God. And so Jesus and His family, they they come to the temple and worship. And so they please God. And in so doing, Jesus was in the perfect position than to be impacted by God. Jesus came to seek God's favor first. He sought to please God first. We cannot seek people's favor first. I think it's interesting because in verse 40, it says the favor of God was on him. And then you get down to verse 52, and it's the favor of God and people. God's favor comes first. Then people's favor. It's when we seek to win people's favor first, but we ignore God, that's when we water down His Word. That's when we try to change His truth. And we, earn up, we end up earning God's disfavor. We must seek first the favor of God, and then in so doing, we put ourselves in a position where we can impact others. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So step number one is come. Come. For Jesus, that, that meant going with His family to the temple to pray and to learn and to worship. For us, that means coming to church. It means coming to spend time with God's people. It means spending time in God's Word. Reading, meditating, memorizing His truth. It means spending time in prayer. And putting ourselves in a position where we can experience the favor of God on our lives. 
So the first step is we come. Second step is we must stay. We come and then we stay. Because growth takes time. Growing in favor with God and with people is a slow cooker process even though we live in a microwave world. See, we want quick results. Instant breakfast. Minute rice. Five-minute workout. Microwave popcorn. We watch our favorite shows on demand. We can go online anywhere and have instant access. And today we have the attention span of dung beetles. And we spend most of our time chasing after the same thing that, well, dung beetles spend their time rolling around. We're always rushing on to the next thing. But Jesus is in no rush. Verse 43 tells us when the feast ended, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. See, everyone else is packing up. Everyone else is busy. Everyone else has got things to do. Everyone else has got to get back to work. But Jesus, He's content to simply stay. And where does He stay? We'll look at verses 45 and 46. When they did not find Him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for Him. After three days, they found Him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Sometimes we just need to to slow down. Sometimes we just need to wait and listen. We need to do what Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. We are always in such a rush. And when we're rushing, we might rush right past whatever it is that God is trying to do in our lives. So don't always just be moving on to the next thing. If we want to have an accessible love, we first need to make ourselves accessible to God. That's where it begins. Let me give you two reasons why. When we stay, we make it easier for God to impact our lives. Down in verse 52, where it says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, the word for increased, according to my Bible dictionary, originally meant to lengthen by hammering or move forward by means of blows. So think of a smith pounding out a sword out of a hot piece of metal. Think of a charioteer driving his horses forward with lashes. We've got to stay where God can shape us and mold us into what He wants us to be. Until that happens, we really can't impact other people. So don't just come to church or or, or join the church, but stay. Be a part of it. Be a part of the life and vitality of the church. Don't just open your Bibles, but but stay in the Word. If we want to have an impact on others, we first must allow God to impact us. And that brings me to the second reason we have to stay. When we stay, it's easier to impact others. 
Jesus was able to impact other people because God first impacted him. And if Jesus had rushed on to the next thing, that might not have happened. Jesus goes to the temple to worship, to listen, to learn. And He's listening to the teachers. He's asking them questions, but then something amazing happens. All of a sudden, Jesus becomes the teacher. And He's only 12 years old. Look down at verse 46. In verse 46, Jesus is asking them questions. But then we get to verse 47, and it says, And all who heard Him were amazed at His understanding and His answers. All of a sudden, they're asking Him questions. So you want who's teaching whom here? You see, Jesus wasn't just a recipient of God's favor. He was a conduit. And God's favor flowed through Him into the lives of others. And so Sunrise needs to be a church that stays. Not here in our four walls, but we need to stay in the presence of God and then we need to stay as a presence of God's love in our community. We need to be the kind of church that that if we disappeared tomorrow, Marshfield would miss us. We would leave a gaping hole where God's people had once showed up and had stayed to make a difference in people's lives. I have a friend named Derek Levins. He's a pastor at First Christian Church in Heron, Illinois. And he's one of the pastors that, that meets with us in our planning sessions every week. And he tells when they first moved to their town, and when they first moved in, Derek put up a basketball goal in their driveway for the kids to play basketball. Well, they have a neighbor lady, and she was annoyed with the basketball goal. She didn't like the sound of the ball bouncing. She didn't like the sound of the ball hitting the backboard. She didn't like the sound of the kids screaming and yelling and playing. And she complained constantly. She took it so far as to go to a public meeting of the city council to to file a protest or grievance or whatever about this basketball goal and and make life miserable, I guess, for Derek and his family. Now, was she being petty? Yeah. she being cantankerous? No doubt. And it would be perfectly understandable if Derek and his family had responded in kind. But Derek says that that instead, that as a family, they decided they would only respond with the love of Jesus. And so they began to take her cookies and treats. They began to look for any and every excuse to do something uh, kind for this lady. And slowly, her attitude began to change. And so came one Christmas and she brings them Christmas cookies Another time, Derek says they were out of town and they forgot to put their garbage out on the curb and she took it out for them. And today, Derek says, she's one of their biggest fans. They have a great relationship with her. Um, They're still hoping to bring her to Jesus. But he says, she simply refers to them as the Christians. They're the Christians. Wouldn't it be awesome? We had such a presence in our community, in our neighborhoods, that people simply refer to us as the Christians with the same kind of 
favor is that. We must come. We must stay. Finally, we must go. Jesus stayed in the temple so that He could be impacted by God and then impact others. Jesus stayed for a time, but then the time came that He had to go. He couldn't stay there forever. Verse 51 says, And He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That is Mary and Joseph. Do we have any 12-year-olds in here this morning? One, any other 12? 11, 12, 13, 14. Listen to me, guys, here. This is just a freebie. This, this is like a bonus point, point 3.5 in the sermon, just for you guys. What's God's mission for you in your life right now? Be submissive to your parents. And a moms and dads are like, Amen. And I know it's not what you guys want to hear. But do you want God's favor? His blessing on your life? Be submissive to your mom and dad. I know the world says, no whine and complain until you get what you want. The world says, no, go behind their backs and do what you want anyway. God says, be submissive. Even Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect person, was submissive. Jesus goes to Nazareth. Now let me tell you about Nazareth. I mean, we kind of have this glorious vision of it in our minds because especially if you grew up in church, you, you grew up, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. But Nazareth was a podunk, little one-stop sign, sorry excuse, town of 400 people. Nobody went to Nazareth unless they had to. Our president has a term for places like Nazareth. And if you think I'm stretching things, in John chapter 1, Philip wants Nathaniel to come see Jesus. Both of these guys would become disciples. Nathaniel wants nothing to do with it because Jesus is from Nazareth. And in verse 46, he says, uh, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And the expected answer is no. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Jesus stayed at the temple long enough to do what needed to be done there, but He didn't stay where He was comfortable. You know, the temple would have been so much nicer than a dump like Nazareth. Hanging out with the teachers and listening and learning and, and discussing with them would have been so much better than, than going to Nazareth and submitting to His parents. His earthly parents. We can't stay in our Christian bubble forever. Because God has a mission for you out there somewhere. You have your own Nazareth. Too often we want something more exciting. We want something better than where we are and what we have. And if only I could go there, if only I could do that. And I think this mentality infects us spiritually. Well, if I could only do this, then God could really use me then. If only that would happen, well, then I could, I could make a difference then. And we've got to quit thinking that we need to be someplace else or be someone else before God 
can use us. Because God can use you now. Even in your own Nazareth. Let me do a little math for you. Jesus' earthly ministry that we read about in the four Gospels begins sometime around when He was 30 years old. He ministered for three years before His death and resurrection. Jesus is 12 years old in this story. That means for the next 18 years, Jesus is in Nazareth. He's in Nazareth and He's growing in wisdom and stature. He's in Nazareth growing in favor with God and with people. He's in Nazareth submitting to His, to his mom and dad, to Mary and Joseph. He's in Nazareth supporting the family business. God will move you on when He's ready, when you're ready. But don't think you have to wait until then. It is in Nazareth where we take God's favor on our lives and spread it to others. You see, it's not just enough to grow in favor with God. You've got to grow in favor with others. You can claim to love God. You can go to church every week. You can go to every Bible study. You can pray for an hour a day. You can know your Bible backwards and forwards. You can know every lyric to every Chris Tomlin song. But if you are not a conduit, that it's allowing God's favor to flow through your life into the lives of others, something is wrong. And so my challenge for you today ultimately is this. Go to your own Nazareth and let God use you there. I don't know what your Nazareth is. That's between you and God to figure out. Maybe your Nazareth is a job you don't really like. But you don't need that dream job for God to use you. Maybe your Nazareth is high school. You're just itching to get on with the rest of your life. But how can God use you now? How can, can you grow in the wisdom in favor of God and with people now? Your Nazareth might be a marriage that isn't what you hoped for. But how may God want to grow you in His favor and even in the favor of your less than perfect spouse now? Perhaps you're Nazareth is, is simply being stuck here in Marshfield. Now, some of us like the small town life. But for others, it's like mind-numbingly boring and there's nothing to do. But do you ever stop to wonder how God wants to grow you here? So come. Grow in wisdom. Stay and experience the favor of God and then go into your Nazareth and earn the favor of people and love them like Jesus. Love them with an accessible love that reaches them right where they are so that Jesus can take them where only Jesus can take them. This is one of those sermons where there is a response for everybody. There are some of you here this morning that need to come. This is, this is the day to come. 
to, to make that first step toward God. For some of you, today is a day you need to, to stay. Time to put down some spiritual roots. Time to, 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 to put yourself under the favor of God and, and experience His favor and grow. There's some of us here this morning that, that now is the time we need to go. We need to go into your Nazareth, whatever your Nazareth may be, and let God's favor flow through your life and touch the lives of others. What is it that the Holy Spirit's calling you to do today? Come, to stay, to go. We need to do all three things at some point. You're at one of those points right now. We're going to stand and sing a song of invitation and commitment. And maybe some of you, you need to literally come. Come and have prayer with one of us, either in the back or I'll be through these doors. Come and and make Sunrise your church home, the, the place where you're going to stay so that you can experience God's favor and that favor can flow through your life into others. We invite you this morning to come. Let us sing.